we are moving into episode 19 of the plan as we go through the story of the entire Bible from beginning to end, and we're, our goal is to focus in on the way there is one plot driving the whole story all the way through, and that that plot is the plot that ultimately we are being invited into as Christians and that we invite others into as we share the gospel. And the plot of the Bible is that it's about God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in His presence. God made the world, He put people in it, and He wants us to be ruling it on His behalf, and He wants to live here with us. That's the design, that's the goal, that's the way it started, and we messed it up. And we are actually really good at messing up this plan. And so the Bible is how God is the story of how God has been restoring that plan through history. At this stage in the Bible, we are moving into further into First Kings, and we last week we talked about the reign of Solomon, which was this really unique golden age in the history of Israel because it was under Solomon that all the pieces of the plan were finally put together the way God had talked about when He called them up out of Egypt. So you had the people of Israel living in a kingdom that God had given them this place that was safe and secure, and God came down to live with them in the temple, and Solomon was ruling over them, and he was a wise king who led them in fulfilling their purpose, which means following the law of Moses. And when they were doing all of this, then people would be able to look at Israel and see God. And we actually see that happen in the story of the Queen of of Sheba coming to visit and, and glorifying God because of what she sees. Unfortunately, Solomon, along the same story, was building his own empire while he was building God's kingdom. And at a certain point, he, he started making decisions that really uh, led away from God's kingdom. And actually what ends up happening is he leads Israel into worshiping other gods alongside the God of Israel. And so last week we talked about how God had decided to, to uh, split up Solomon's kingdom, but he wasn't going to do it while Solomon was alive because of the promise he made to David, Solomon's father. So as we go into the story today, we're still going to be at the end of Solomon's reign, but we're going to see how God breaks up that empire and, and what happens with the person that takes over as the leader of the majority of the Israelites. So as I read this section, remember this is how we're keeping our bearings, and you want to keep your eyes out for who the story is about, where their home is, uh, how they can meet with God, and what God told them to do. And with this story especially, if you're keeping track of those things, you'll, you'll see the plot tension arise before the Bible points out the issue that this new main character is going to face. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did in his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of the tribes of all the tribes of Israel, you will have one tribe. The math, pause, the math doesn't quite work out. That's because... Judah and Benjamin were at this point kind of treated as one tribe, but so that's where the twelve comes from. Ten northern tribes and then Judah and Benjamin uh, will be left with the son of David. 
I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Moloch, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. As for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David, my servant, did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt to Kishash the king and stayed there until Solomon's death. When Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes over, makes some really unwise decisions that causes the, uh, the majority of Israel to rebel against him. And when Jeroboam hears about that, he leaves Egypt and goes back into Israel. It says, when all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. All right, that's our opening passage. So who is the story about? It's about Jeroboam and the northern tribes. The Israelites have now been split into two different kingdoms, so the story that we're looking at right now is specifically about Jeroboam and the northern tribes. Where is their home? We'll call it the northern kingdom of Israel. Typically, these two kingdoms are now called Israel and Judah. Um, the northern kingdom is called Israel, and here is a map for you. So you can see the yellow area is the tribes of Israel, and then the tribe of Judah plus Benjamin is in red there. So the majority of, of the Israelites are now part of this kingdom. So there's a way in which Jeroboam is, is the real successor to Solomon, because he gets the majority of Israel, and he has promised his dynasty that could be as successful as David. He's given almost the same promise as David. But here's the tricky thing. How can they meet with God? Do you see a problem here? God's presence is at the temple in Jerusalem. Where is Jerusalem? Uh, it is in the southern kingdom. Go back, you can see, God doesn't live in Israel. God lives in Judah. That's going to be a challenge. Finally, what is uh, what did God tell them to do? Well, God tells Jeroboam the same thing that he's told the other kings. That we've, this has been our, our recurring theme about what it means to be a king over Israel. They're supposed to obey God. Right? They're supposed to obey God's commands. Now, there are a lot of commands in the Old Testament, a lot of commands in the Law of Moses, so I'm going to pick a couple, just just a random, just to see if maybe they'll come up later, you know. Um, here's Deuteronomy 12. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. So among these commands, first of all, we've got don't worship at the places that the pagan kingdoms worship, and worship at the one place that God has chosen. 
Okay? Take a random one from Numbers. I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites. The Levites are mine. Uh, in this passage, God is setting aside the Levites to be his people, his tribe that handle the tabernacle and then the temple. They All the priests come from the Levites. The Levites are set aside for God's purposes. Okay? And only Levites can be priests. And then one more random law uh, from Leviticus. This is about the Feast of Tabernacles. So because day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day also is a day of Sabbath rest. Okay, so the king's job is to obey God's commands. Out of those 613, uh, we have don't, uh, don't worship at the high places. Worship only in God's chosen place. Only Levites can be priests and the Festival of Tabernacles is on the 15th day of the seventh month. Let's see if those come back. Let's come up again. So what does Jeroboam do now that he's received this promise from God and the promises that God made turned out exactly the way God said they would, right? Jeroboam didn't lead a revolt. Everything just happened so that he could walk back into uh, Israel and was given a kingdom, basically. So how does he react? Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So, King Jeroboam is a little insecure. He is worried that he is going to lose his kingdom. And he is worried, basically, because he's worried that his people will reject him. He's worried that the people will change their minds. Basically, he's, he's thinking politically. Right? He's thinking about the political issues of, of keeping his electorate, so to speak, satisfied, happy. He wants to keep his approval ratings up. Right? The problem is, how, how are... Over and over again, we've talked about this. What measures the success or ensures the success of God's people? What is the promise that God makes to his people over and over again about what will uh, keep them successful in God's plan? obedience. He says, if you obey me, I will give you a dynasty that will endure. If you obey me, you will rule over my people and your children. Like, the same thing he said to David, the same thing he says in the covenant that, that they will he will keep his place in God's plan if he obeys God. That's what should actually be the main concern. If he's worried about whether he's going to stay king, the concern should be, am I obeying God or not? Instead, his concern is, are the people happy or not? Or are they going to get tempted away? He's concerned about politics. Jeroboam feared that he would lose his power if the Israelites kept worshiping in Jerusalem, which is a legitimate political concern, but it's not a legitimate covenant concern. You see the difference? If, we trust, if he trusts in the promises that God made to him, and in who God is and has been revealed throughout the history of Israel, then his main concern should be, am I obeying God or not? And if I obey God, then I'll be fine. Then God will keep his promises. Instead, he's distracted by this political issue. So how does Jeroboam act on this anxiety, this fear that he has of losing his new kingdom? 
After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Okay, so does any of that sound familiar? The golden bowls that are used to... If you remember, there was another incident with a golden calf in Exodus. And what we learned there was that the golden calf is not a different god. Jeroboam is not telling the Israelites to worship a different god. The golden calf is actually a different ark. Like the Ark of the Covenant, the golden calf is meant to be a place where God's presence uh, comes to earth. The idea is if you make an elaborate animal for God to ride, then he will come down onto that animal and you will be able to meet him in that place. So the, the uh, calves are alternatives to the Ark of the Covenant, and they're meant to create new places where you can experience the presence of Yahweh, the God of Israel. So it's not a, new, it's not a different God. It's two new places where, you're suppo- where supposedly you can encounter God's presence. So Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay, so he builds these two new places for them to worship at. Uh, so, and one of them he puts at the top of his kingdom. Dan is at the very top of his kingdom. And Bethel is at the bottom of his kingdom. So that there's no reason to go to Jerusalem. If you're in the northern half of his kingdom, it's faster to go to Dan. And if you're in the southern half, you have to pass Bethel um, to get to Jerusalem. So you might as well just stop at Bethel, right? So he's making sure that they worship in his kingdom. But he doesn't stop there. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. And he instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing the calves, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. So here's a map of, of where he built those. You see there's Dan at the top and Bethel down there at the bottom. And the interesting thing about Dan is that we've actually found that location. There's an archaeological dig that has unearthed that location, and here's a picture of it. You can see that the high place, this is where the golden calf would have been, this platform up here on the right of the screen. And then over here on the, in the bottom left corner is where the altar would have been. In fact, they've made this metal structure that resembles the size that the altar would have been. So that's the actual location of the high place again. It's fascinating to me. So what he's doing here is uh, Jeroboam responds to this tension, this, this issue of uh, the fear of losing his kingdom by building his own shrines, priests, uh, by establishing his own shrines, priests, and festivals in Israel. You notice that he's, he's built new high places and, and with calves. He's established his own priests out of whoever he wants, and he changed the date of the Feast of Tabernacles to the eighth month. Now, why did he make all of these changes? The first one seems kind of obvious, but why did he appoint different priests, and why did he change the date of the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, the common theme in all these changes is that he made these changes to protect his own power. 
we've already talked about the first one, that he doesn't want his people leaving Israel and going into Judah to worship. It's just not, it's, it's not a good idea to have, they were supposed to do this multiple times a year, to have your people dependent on another kingdom in order to worship. Uh, and also, you know, the king of Judah is going to be involved in that worship. And it's just, you, you just politically, it's, you don't want to mix those things up. So he wants them to stay home. But then there's the priesthood. The thing about the priest is, first of all, all the priests answer to the high priest, who is where? In Jerusalem. So even the priests and the Levites in Israel, they ultimately still answer to someone in Jerusalem. The other problem with that is that the Israelites, or the, the job of the Levites was to teach the Israelites the law of Moses. And Jeroboam has made changes to the law of Moses. And if the Levites do their job and are the official teachers, they're going to be the first ones to point out that Jeroboam has broken the law. And ultimately, the Levites are not loyal, supposed to be loyal to the king. They're supposed to be loyal to the law. They're supposed to be loyal to God. Separation of church and state is a, is a very new concept in the history of humanity, but this is something similar where the, the priests, aren't, they answer ultimately to God um, above the king. Jeroboam doesn't like that. So if he starts appointing his own priests, those priests only have their office because he gave it to them. So now they do answer to the king. So he is in control of, of the religious observances of the laws, the way the laws are being taught, and he can now control the way they're worshiping. And finally, changing that feast is a way of creating separation between Israel and Judah. Because it means that there's, there's now distinct, when you work, people who worship together tend to be together, tend to be, think of themselves as one body, right? That's one of the powerful things about worship. And so if you want to convince people that they're, that they're not the same, that they're not part of one group, force them to worship in two different groups, right? Have them worship on different calendars. It's a way of indicating that they're not the same as us. We are our own people and we don't want anything to do with them because that serves Jeroboam's agenda of being completely independent of the, the king of Jerusalem. Now, as we look at those laws that, uh, that Jeroboam has broken, they may seem kind of arbitrary. And it may seem like the, the problem here is simply that Jeroboam has not followed to the letter a series of arbitrary laws about where you're supposed to worship, when you're supposed to worship, and who's supposed to be a priest. For us in, in, our, um, in our secularized world, we tend to not take those things quite as seriously, and so it seems like arbitrary, like God just, it, God's just being fickle about these, these rules, and the problem is we didn't do it, obey these fickle rules. But those rules are there for a reason. Because obeying the law of Moses communicated to the world who God was. And so Jeroboam's changes distorted the way Israel's worship revealed God's character. That's the core of the problem, is that as Jeroboam changes the way they worship, he changes the message that they send to the world about who God is. First of all, there are now three locations that claim to have the presence of God be the special uh, location of the presence of God, right? There's the temple and there's the two golden calves. 
God is very, very clear in the law of Moses that he only wants his he only wants people to worship in his presence in one place because he is one God. See, in that culture, in that time, you m- most gods had multiple locations where you could worship, mainly for the same reason as Jeroboam built a new place to worship, because they didn't want to have to worship in a in the kingdom of whoever came up with that god in the first place, so you would have a, a temple to Baal in each kingdom. The problem is, those kingdoms would fight each other. So, whose side is Baal on? Well, maybe there's actually two Baals. That would make more sense, right? Baal can't fight himself. So, maybe there's two Baals. And maybe the people who, who pray to the Baal in that city, they actually tend, their, their prayers about rain tend to get answered more than, than this one over here. So, maybe that Baal is better at bringing rain and this one over here is better at answering prayers for fertility, or this one will help kill your enemies. Like, they, they ended up with these, you would go to a specific location, uh, a specific temple of Baal for a specific function. It was like they were specialists. Like, this is, like, this is your orthodontist Baal, and this is your orthopedic surgeon Baal, and this is the one, like, and it's, they turned into different gods, rival gods because they have these different locations. Having one location to worship God is essential to communicating the fact that God is one. And that God has one people and one plan. And as you create these different locations, you muddle that image so that God seems to have a franchise just like Baal, and he's, he's no different from the other gods. And then God is on both sides of conflict. He's not very consistent. He's kind of fickle. He, he, he starts to look like other gods. As you look at the important, there are many reasons why changing the change to the priesthood is important. One of them is because it communicates the idea that the king is in control of the priesthood and is actually the one in charge of the worship of God, which is not true under the law. Also, the reason the reason why the Levites were specifically chosen, why there was one tribe chosen for the priesthood to come out of, is because God said the Levites may not own property. They may not own land. Their income was from offerings. And they, but they weren't supposed to get rich off of that. So it's not a bonus. That you depend on, because you serve God, you depend on the offerings to support you. You don't also get to have a side hustle of, of farming the land and stuff like that. So you, had, you trusted in God and depended on God for that income. Well, now, if the king can appoint anybody, and as soon as you get appointed to be a priest, you get this free income, then it changes the nature of what a priest is and what it means to be a priest and what it, the sacrifice that it takes to be a priest. And it becomes this reward that the king can give out to people that are loyal to him. And it distorts that meaning. And it also means that you don't actually have to know the law of Moses to be a priest. You don't have to have been trained in that. That's not, you don't have to keep God happy. You have to keep the king happy. And finally, as he changes the calendar, what he's doing is, again, communicating that there are two different sets of God's people. Or that there's a true one and a false one. Maybe the way he would look at it and say, no, the kingdom of Judah is not actually God's people. But there's this idea of, of separating and trying to create two people, which is not what God said. God never said, I'm going to have two people with two different destinies and two different plans. What he said, he's, he's going to have two different kingdoms that worship the same God. And when you split God's people, that changes what people say, see about God. 
I think we could say that today. It wouldn't be hard to look around and say that the divisions in the church communicate something to people about God, right? Not something good. And that's what's happening is as these are turned into two rival people, it says something about God and his ability to have one people and rule over one people, or about maybe God is only on one side or the other, or he just can't keep them together. It communicates something wrong about who God is. So that's why this is so serious, is because the mission of Israel is to show the world who God is. And now because of these changes that Jeroboam has made, when they look at Israel, they don't see God. They, see, they don't see God as He is. They see a God that looks just like everybody else's God. Even though it's still, they're still calling Him the same thing, He just looks like everybody else, what everybody else is telling Him. And God is not okay with this. And so, Jeroboam, this is kind of his first, his first ceremony as king, he goes out to lead that that new holiday that he's made, and God sends a prophet to intervene. It says, on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, Jeroboam offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar, 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 this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. That same day the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart, and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also, the altar was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. Then the king said to the man of God, Intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. So, as Jeroboam is getting ready to launch this new northern version of the religion, a prophet from Judah comes up and says, basically calls us out for exactly what it is, and says, this is not what God is doing. God is going to destroy this. God is going to end this. And he gives a sign. Pretty incredible sign, right? So the king is pointing, and his hand shrivels up. And then it's only when the, when the prophet prays for him that it's healed again. And then the altar just splits, in, just splits for no reason. For no discernible reason. It splits open in the act. And that, that's important because only the most powerful, only a more powerful God has control, can do something to an altar, right? Like, if, if a God destroys that altar, then that God is the most powerful God. Now, you would think so, so what happens here is that God sent a prophet to condemn Jeroboam's actions with miraculous signs. Now, you would think that that kind of sign would get through to Jeroboam, right? 
You raise your hand if you think that would get through. Well, maybe don't raise your hand. That got Jeroboam in trouble. But the point is, that's a pretty big deal to experience, right? And you would think if day one of your new religion, God sends a prophet who can do those kinds of things, you might think, okay, well, maybe this is a bad idea. Right? Well, never mind. Forget it. Forget it. Everybody, we'll pack up. We're going to Jerusalem. We're going to worship the temple. That's what you would think. Human nature being that's not how the story goes. It says, even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways, but once more appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated from the high places, for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. So Jeroboam chose to continue his rebellion, and ultimately it destroyed his dynasty. What happened is that his son, he dies, and his son becomes king, and after two years, he's assassinated, and someone else becomes king, which sets a pattern that the kingdom of Israel follows for the rest of its history. And basically, but what's really happening there is that they're following Jeroboam's example, because Jeroboam's example was that the king will do whatever it takes to hold on to power. And so this guy decides, well, I'm going to do whatever it takes to hold on to, to get power, which means I'm going to kill the king and become king myself. But the question is, why didn't Jeroboam learn his lesson? Why didn't he respond to these miraculous signs? And we aren't told exactly. So, as I look at that story, what I have to offer is not what the Bible says, but my experience of these kind of situations, which is that the way of thinking that Jeroboam has been pulled into is very, very powerful. It's very, very hard to get out of. Trust in God and faithfulness to God does not happen overnight. Because Jeroboam is in a pattern that has probably been going on his entire life of, folk, of approaching every problem with, what power do I have to control the situation? How can I make things turn out the way I want them to? Or how might I not have the power to control the situation? But that's what, and he becomes king. And his first reaction, even though he's got the far bigger kingdom, is insecurity. How might I not be able to hold on to this thing, this kingdom that I've been given? Because he's, he's caught up in this way of thinking that analyzes everything based on my power, what I can control, what I can do to make sure things turn out the way I want. And that is a really difficult, difficult mindset to learn your way out of. It is a long journey that requires a lot of, of determination and, as we'll find, divine intervention to get to a place where you can trust in God that if I am obedient to Him, that He will ensure that my life goes according to His plan. So, even after His hand being shriveled up in front of Him and then healed, and the altar being split in half at the word of the prophet, it didn't change him at all. Because he was so caught up in that way of thinking. And that should be a warning to us that we are also just as susceptible to be trapped in that way of thinking. And I want us to realize that potential, that connection, that similarity between us and Jeroboam as we go into the morals of the story. Because we also have been entrusted with authority, with influence, with a part of God's kingdom. And 
as we read the stories of the kings, we want to learn how we can be good stewards of that. So the first thing that we need to learn, which we talked about a lot of times throughout this series already, is that God's people are called to reflect His character to a world that doesn't know Him. We are called to reflect the character of God into a world that doesn't know Him. And that are, they, are, they are looking for God. They may not know that's what they're looking for, but they're looking for God. We are supposed to reflect God to them. And the word that we often use for that, the, the Christianese word that we often use for that is witnessing. We talk about our witness. But too often we restrict that word to when I am formally presenting the gospel to a person and telling them about Jesus Christ. And the fact is that when you reach a point where you're having the conversation with someone about how to become a Christian, they have already been witnessed to countless times, intentionally or unintentionally, because they've been witnessed to by every Christian they've encountered in the way they behave, in the way they make decisions, because our whole lives point to show people what we think about God. The way we worship together here shows people what we think about God. They learn what we believe about God from everything that we do. And the problem is that our desires, fears, and insecurities tempt us to make compromises that will distort that reflection. We will come and fall into the same trap as Jeroboam of seeing this thing is out of my control, but if I can get it under my control, then I can make sure that this bad thing won't happen to me. And we think that our problems are solved by getting control of things and forcing them to turn out the way we want them. And it's amazing how often taking control of a situation requires us to do things that God doesn't want us to do. It's amazing how often forcing circumstances to turn out the way we want requires us to be dishonest, requires us to be unkind, requires us to be selfish, or cruel, or thoughtless. It's amazing how quickly that road leads us into doing things that God doesn't want us to do, and doing things that do not reflect who God is. And it is in those moments that it's most important for us to stay true to the character of God. Because you know when your witness is most powerful... It's when other people can see all the reasons you have to be dishonest, yet you chose to be honest. To be cruel, but you chose to be kind. To be selfish, but you chose to be selfless. When they see you behave in ways that can't be explained except that you are reflecting God. Those are the moments that our witness is most powerful. Imagine what it would have been like if the northern kingdom of Israel had been faithful to God's commands and had chosen to worship in Jerusalem. They would have been the only kingdom we've ever heard of that didn't have their own shrines to their God and was willing to go to another country to worship. That requires such incredible trust. It would have been impossible to explain otherwise. It would have been a very powerful image. And yet instead, we have a kingdom that acts just like everybody else. In those moments when we face that temptation to be selfish, to be cruel, to be dishonest, 
because we can get what we want out of it. Those are the moments that's most important that we behave like God. But the question is, after... Everybody's starting to get worn out with these stories of, of Israelite failure. Right? Like, this is the third king in a row that we've told a story that ends with them doing it. What hope do we have to be better than David, Solomon, Jeroboam, or any of the rest of these guys? Well, there is a hope that we have that makes all the difference. At the Last Supper, Jesus says a prayer. And he says this prayer for his people. He's praying to God about his people. And this is what he says. This is what the Messiah, the Son of God, says. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly and to fully unpack that, you have to dig into that word sanctify. The first thing is, notice that this is Jesus recognizing we have to be in this world even though we're not of it. And that is the challenge. That is, that is the struggle. And he recognizes that struggle. He has shared that. And he is praying that God would protect us as we face that struggle. But then he starts praying about being sanctified. To be sanctified is to be set apart and to be prepared and to be shaped for a particular purpose. What he's praying is that God would take us and set us aside and shape us and prepare us to be able to do exactly what he's called us to do. He's asking for God to intervene in the lives of his people to change us so that we can be the people he's called us to be. So we can be set aside the same way Jesus was set aside. The same way Jesus was set aside. And a big part of that will be the giving of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God that lives in God's people and changes them and transforms them and gives them the ability to, to, to say no to sin. So in Jesus, we have a Savior who equips us to have and display God's character. Jesus Christ is the reason why we have hope to succeed where so many of the Israelites failed. Not because we're better, not because we're smarter, not because we've discovered so much in the last 3,000 years, not because science has advanced so much or, or civilization or anything like that, but because Jesus Christ died on the cross and God raised him from the dead so that we could have new transforming life that changes us to be the people we were called to be. There is hope that in the next situation when you're tempted to lie, you can tell the truth. There is hope that the next time you're tempted to lose your temper, you can hold on to it. You can be kind where you used to be cruel. You can be patient where you used to be easily angered. You can be changed to be more like Christ. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to fail. But even in those failures, the way God redeems you from those failures and changes you and the way you are transformed, even that will point people toward God. Even as you stumble, those will point people toward God. That is the hope that we have. So as we close, I'm going to tell you that God is inviting you. I believe every time the gospel is preached, God is inviting you to respond in some way, to take whatever step is in front of you. And there are a lot of steps on the road to following Jesus. And so I don't know what step is in front of you, but here's some big ones that, that you might be called to take. The first one is to give your life to Jesus. 
If you have not decided to follow Him, if you have not given your life to Him and asked to be transformed, to be the people we've been called to be, today is the best day to do that. You can come forward as we sing the song if you want to make that decision, or you can talk to one of our uh, ministers after the service. If you're online, you can contact the church or get in touch with a Christian that you trust. Decision, and you want to, you need help. You need help in, in that transformation. God doesn't call us to do this alone. So we encourage you to participate in our small groups and in our service teams as we work together as Christians, as believers, to support each other and to serve our community. You can mark your connection card if you want to join one of those groups. And finally, if you're looking to be tied into a group, to be part of a family um, that is is working every day to reflect God in their community through the, the good things that we do and through the ways we repent of the bad things that we do. If you want to be a part of a community like that, that's who we are seeking to be. We'd love for you to place your membership here. If you'd like to find out more, you can sign up for our Connect class where we'll talk about who the church is, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. You can also check that on your Connect card. So I encourage you to consider what is God calling you to do next as we stand and sing our final song.